Welcome to Beneath the Wing. Just like air passing over the wing of an aircraft provides lift, the people we meet can also give us lift in life by sharing their stories of strength and success, connecting us all. Beneath the Wing explores the stories of those connected with the Minnesota Air National Guard's 133rd Airlift Wing with a little humor and learning along the way. I'm your host, Wing Command Chief Mark Legvold. Thanks for joining me on Beneath the Wing. Today I have our 14th Minnesota State Command Chief, Lisa Erickson, originally from Esco, Minnesota, now proudly hailing out of Proctor, Minnesota. She's served as the 148th Fighter Wing at the 148th Fighter Wing in Duluth, as well as a bit of time in active duty. So we'll dig deeper into her very diverse professional portfolio, but first I need to make a correction. Uh, so last podcast, I interviewed Jelani Olton, uh, awesome interview, and he made a reference to a, the song Walk 500 Miles, actually titled I'm Gonna Be, and I totally spaced out on the name of the band, which I will proclaim is The Proclaimers, a band formed by twin brothers Craig and Charlie Reed out of England. And by the way, if that earworm is now stuck in your brain, like it was mine, they are still touring. Okay. Minnesota State Command Chief Lisa Erickson, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me, finally, on your podcast. Well, it is indeed a pleasure, or it should be here over the next 40 minutes or so. Let's just start with that, State Command Chief. Yes. You uh, took over for our dear friend Mark Rukavina last month and just got done with your first official drill at Joint Force Headquarters. How'd that go? It was different. So you know the hustle and bustle of the wing. You always have just constant movement, constant people. It was really quiet, yet still full of life. When you think of Joint Force Headquarters, you don't often think of all the enlisted that are there that make it all move. There is a good group of enlisted corps that are there that need care and feeding. So it was fun just to see the smaller group and get to know a few of them a bit better. So are you there for the care and feeding, as we like to say, of the enlisted force at Joint Force Headquarters, or are you there for the care and feeding of all the enlisted forces in the state? And if both, how do you do that? It's both. How do you do that? Delicately. Well, let's see, I've been in the seat maybe three weeks, so we're still learning. It's still a work in progress. Chief Legbold, I'd like to say. Mm -hmm. One of the, my favorite questions to ask somebody that joins me from Joint Force Headquarters is, exactly what is it you do here to help the wings so let's just let's start there delicately what what's your big goal for helping us here at the wings care and feed for the airmen that we're responsible for well I think one of the things that we need to work on right now and just looking at what we've been facing for the last three four months actually the last 18 months but most recently the last three four months with the vaccine mandate I just, I think there's a lot of work we need to do with just resiliency within our forces. We need to look at our junior enlisted, find out what makes them tick, really, really listen to them, not just say we're listening, but really get in the weeds with them and listen to what they need. And we as senior leaders need to give that to them. Uh, as we've walked through all of the vaccine, every commander, every, the tag, every officer that's been in charge has said, Please handle everyone with dignity and grace. And we need to make sure that we are handling everyone with dignity and grace throughout the rest of this process. Because we still have missions that need to get done. So 
my biggest goal is to provide a good core resiliency program for both wings. That's getting back to the resiliency training, all of that. Uh, what did we used to have? We had resiliency trainers. Is that what we called we them? Did. Master resiliency Master, trainers. Yep. You know, let's blow the dust off there. Let's look at some of that information and let's start working on taking care of each other. Okay, so unpacking the idea of building resilience in people. Mm -hmm. That's one of your big goals for this. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's one of the questions I was going to ask you. But if I am an airman and I work for an outside agency like, you know, Best Buy 3M, um, Cirrus Air, uh, Duluth Police Department, any of those. And so I come in here one weekend a month and drill. Where does resiliency actually take place? How is that built? How does that, where does the rubber meet the road? The rubber meets the road when you look yourself in the mirror. And that's what we need to do is we need to give the airmen the tools to look at themselves in the mirror and to be able to see what pillar they need to fill up that day. Is it your spiritual, your social, your mental, your physical? What is it that you're hungry for that day? And know that they have resources with the wing or with their civilian um, employer that can help fill those pillars and build that resiliency. So I kind of put resiliency back on the individual to identify what they might need. But it is our job to provide them the tools and the resources that they need to get to fill those resiliency skills. Is that the biggest goal that you have for the position right now? No, but right now walking in, as you look and you look around the wings, you look and, and see how hard we've been pushing and how hard everyone's been working. And it just feels, it feels, and I'm a feeler, it feels to me like we need to look at their resiliency a little bit and help them put their head back up, put their shoulders back, and move forward. Okay. That's a lot to do. It is. That's why, you know, we're just going to scratch the surface of it. But I think as leaders, it's our job to provide the resources. Do we help? Um, do we help our people gain skills here that allow them to be more resilient in their civilian professional life and their relationships outside of here? What's the what's the what's the big driver of being in the in the guard in the air guard a part of this organization that allows people to say it makes me a better person elsewhere? Loaded question. I would say. I'm getting graded on these we questions. We are part of a bigger team. Yeah. We all joined to be a part of a, we all felt the call to be part of something bigger. So, yes, they should be able to come here. They should be able to get what they need here because we are, we have all the resources. You know, just two doors down from here, there's a beautiful uh, what do you call that? Their Airman Wellness Center. Mm -hmm. The 148th is also putting together an Airman Care facility that will be very similar to what you have. And it's going to be in the old FSS that the 148th has. So I think both wings are realizing that the resiliency resources that they have are needed and to provide a nice space for Airmen to utilize those resources is uh is one of our priorities. So that's that's an interesting point because um, there are folks that listen to this podcast that haven't worn a uniform a day in their life. And when you say we have this Airman Wellness Center or an Airman Care area um, at our wings, 
we've purposefully gone out and created a space where all of those helping agencies, whether it's the Director of Psychological Health or the Airman Family Readiness Coordinator or any of those helping functions that provide support mm -hmm. and help to develop resilience in our airmen, they're all together in one spot. Yes. And I find that unique uh, and a whole lot different than what somebody would see out in the public corporate world where it's accountability to shareholders and customers. And here it's accountability to the most, the airman who is most in need at one given point. Yes. So it, it's part of what makes being out here and being in the military kind of a, an interesting part of a person's life. What drew you in? originally because it wasn't always that way and I'm thinking back to no the, we'd never talked about resiliency oh, in the 1900s oh heck. <laughs> we did not in the 1900s in the 1900s it was just you that's you just put your boots on strapped your uniform back on and you went to work and that's that's what you did did your parents, hair put it up in a very tight oh that your hurt hair your yes I used to put my hair up in the 1900s and 80s and 90s and then I decided the shorter look was more aerodynamic I agree with you yes 100% and probably more so <laughs> yes but let so, <laughs> so in order back. to be resilient yep one of the biggest reasons we need a resilient airmen is because we need them ready look what we have faced in the last 18 months we could never have anticipated that we needed our airmen so ready so quickly so that's why looking at their resiliency is a big one of the biggest components of their readiness yeah in my opinion. It has been a, it's been a tough 18 months. Here at the wing, uh, at, down in the Twin Cities, um, Minneapolis-St. Paul area, we've we've faced everything. Yes. It seems. That we uh, never thought we would face. Correct. Um, it's been a tough year. It's been a tough year on our airmen. I, I've, uh, I've had countless conversations with folks that have dealt with the emotional difficulty of serving their community when their community was in need of big-time social change. Yeah. And, you know, struggling through that stuff, they have come out overwhelmingly on the other side uh, much more, like you said, resilient, stronger. And they're going to be looking back at way back in the 2020s, I remember when, right. 20 years from now, when they're getting ready to retire. Just think of those relationships that have been built, though. Um, that's the other piece to everything is relationships. Um, the 133rd and the 148th worked together quite nicely in the last 18 months for PI-59, um, Operation Safety Net. All of those things were done together. And I can't think back in my career that we've ever taken on a mission so connected as what we have in the last 18 months. It talks about the need for partnerships to exist, yes. doesn't it? Yes. And how how good, uh, when you talk about um, PI-59, that was when we went out and we supported the inauguration of the president. And um, Operation Safety Net was when the National Guard, Army, Air, and the, the Duluth and the Twin Cities Air unit specifically kind of came together and supported the cities of St. Paul and Minneapolis in protecting people's rights for free speech and protecting lives and property within the city and helping. And I would don't let's not limit it there. Let's talk about our COVID missions that we've been on. 
uh, these testing sites that we've had, the alternate care facilities that we're standing up now, that's Army Air. Yep. That's all Minnesota National Guard, Air and Army. So the relationships aren't just between the two wings. It's also with our Army counterparts that we are seeing our airmen and our soldiers are able to work together in concert like we've never had the opportunity before, I, I believe. Absolutely. And it's, I think it's been good. It's I been think very, so. very good. And it, it makes us a much more ready and flexible force. Um, always ready. Always, that's what they say here in the Minnesota National Guard. Always You're ready. You're starting to sound like a Joint Force Headquarters person. <laughs> let's let's go back to 1988. Eight. I was going to say 86. But. That's the year we graduated. I graduated high school. You know, I went to college for a couple of years. Thought college was going to be the deal. Where was college for you? Well, I started at Moorhead State for one quick quarter, blew all my graduation money on one quick quarter, and then came home to ESCO and went to UWS, UW-Superior. What a great time. That's where I met my husband. Really? at UWS, yeah. No kidding. Mm -hmm. That's where the love story started. That's where the love story. You know, every story has a has a love, a little romance. It does. That's where that started. So you went, you went for a quarter... A quarter? A quarter. Back in the 80s, it was quarters. Mm. I don't remember when we switched to semesters. That but is it... so funny because my first college was a semester. Oh, a semester. I left before they invited me to leave. <laughs> <laughs> I probably, yeah. It was fun, though. I went to UWS because a bunch of my high school friends were going to UWS. So my best friend, Leah Barrett, Leah Lippinen, good Finnish name, uh, she was going to UWS. So I wanted to go with her. All right. So we did. For how long? I did that for a year and a half until April of 88 when I enlisted and left. Were you married when you enlisted? No. So Jeff, that lucky guy, uh, we never started quite dating. We were friends, but we didn't date. So I went off into the Air Force. What brought you to the Air Force? Oh, the Air Force. Well, honestly, it was the guy I was dating at the time. His brother was in the Air Force. So... That kind of, that's where I learned about the Air Force was through Jason Line, um, who is, was a professional pro stock drag racer, I might add. No kidding. Mm -hmm. Well, all mm -hmm. right. But his brother Lance and I were dating for a couple years, and he was in the Air Force, and he kept coming home on leave and saying how much fun he was having, and I thought, I've got to get the heck out of Dodge for a while. So I enlisted. ESCO in the Air Force. is not the, the hub of social activity in <laughs> not Minnesota, really. is it? And I was the baby of the family. No one in my family had ever been in the military. So as I told my parents that, yep, I went to MAPS and oh, by the way, I enlisted and oh, by the way, I leave in April. You can tell how well that went over. I am quite positive. So you went to Military Entrance Processing Center, yes, MAPS. MAPS. That is where everybody who joins the military goes and they, they see medical providers and they answer a lot of very detailed questions about their life. Yes. And at some point, everybody starts to have this little bead of sweat develop under their hair because everybody going through there usually has hair. Uh, and they start going, am I making the right decision? This is a lot. Right. As for, for a 19, 20-year-old, 18-year-old. As you followed that blue line through MEPS because they had colored lines based on what force, what branch you were going into. So I followed the blue line all around. And I remember the last day. So before you ship, you go back to MEPS. You take one last oath when you're active duty. And then they ask you, is there anything you've done? Anything at all that you got to tell us? That's when the beat of sweat started. I'm like, what have I done? 
I got a parking ticket at UWS. <sighs> I'm sorry. And they're like, oh, that's okay. That's fine. I thought I was going to... I dodged a bullet there. Yeah, no kidding. You can tell what a colored past I've had with that. A parking ticket. I had been stopped for speeding. Es Esco is not the hub of, of socialization for the state of Minnesota, nor is it the crime capital of the world, is it? No, but it sure is a nice little basketball town. I believe And you. football. You know, we love their sports. Little Esco Eskimos. Yeah. Yeah. I got to give a little shout out. The, the Esco Eskimos made it to state in the football. In the football. Did you hear? In uh, football this oh. year. Mm -hmm. I believe soccer as well. Mm -hmm. Wow. A lot of good athletes there in Esco. <laughs> yes. Yes. So you joined the Air Force. Mm -hmm. Off you went. Did you go in open general? In, in other words, did you let the Air Force pick your job? No, Mark. You never let the Air Force pick your job. That is sage advice. Yes. So, and here's where the story begins. I became a jet engine mechanic. Why would you become a, a mechanic? Well, I wanted to go into administration or personnel, but the wait time was at least 12 to 18 months to get in. And when I was there, I was like, I got to do this and I got to make the decision. And so the, re the recruiter that was sitting at MAPS was like, hey, let's look at this. And he starts talking about me being a jet mechanic. And I'm like, I can do that. He's like, yeah, you can. So I enlisted to be a jet engine mechanic. The most I knew was lefty, loosey, righty, tighty. That's, that was the core that I knew of mechanics. I quickly learned what an F-100 turbo jet engine can do, though. I hear it puts air, airplanes up in the air quickly. Very fast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you go to technical school in Chanute Air Force Base. Chanute Air Force Base. I certainly did. Yes. After basic training, went to Chanute Air Force Base uh, for 9.5 weeks of training. Um, then I received orders. You know, when you're active duty, you fill out this thing called a dream sheet yeah. where you, you fill in where you want to go. And I left ESCO saying, I want to go see the world. But man, day two at BMT, I was, what am I doing? So I filled out my dream sheet saying I wanted to go to North Dakota, South Dakota, Michigan, any base that surrounded the state of Minnesota. That's where I wanted to go. I got my orders, Okinawa, Japan, Kadena Air Force Base. Do you know what I knew about that? It's just a dream sheet. Karate Kid. That's the only thing I, could, I knew about Okinawa, Japan. I had to look on the map. Where is this? But it was cool was a, probably the best thing that ever happened. It stretched me beyond anything I thought I could do. It's amazing. You said something that was relatively poignant earlier in that you're going through MEPS and you're trying to find out what to do in the Air Force. You just want to get out of ESCO, mm -hmm. run away from home and join the military. Mm -hmm. And that recruiter or that person helping you said, yes, you can when it comes to working on jet yes. engines Yes. as young not college dropout, but running away from home anyway. Yeah. Lisa Erickson had somebody say to you early in your career, yes, you can. Yes. And off you went. Yes, that person told me you can do this. And the confidence built from there, and then you ran away all the way to Japan. Okinawa. Or the Air Force without a choice. Right, Okinawa, Japan. What a great experience. Three years on the Ryuku Island chain, where it's, I believe it's 60 miles long, and I can't say how many miles wide. Um, but... Yeah, into the jet engine shop in the 18th Tactical Fighter Wing. How many women were working in the shop? There were three or four of us at that time. Probably there was 
50 assigned to the shop and three of us working on the floor were mechanics. There were some, you know, we had supply folks and administration folks in the back offices. There were some females there, but on the floor in the jet engine shop, there was three females what and they it? separated us. You know, we can't all be on the same crew. So we were on separate crews. Okay. Which was fine for upgrade training purposes. Well, sure. Yes. I guess that would make sense, wouldn't it? I had wonderful trainers and wonderful supervisors. They took very, very good care of me. I was like their little sister, their daughter. You know, they they just looked at this blue-eyed, blonde, redhead girl who had no clue what she was doing and quickly shaped her into a halfway decent mechanic, I might say. And then at some point you started training other people. We did. What did the experience of being one of three women in a male-dominated um, career field, which it still is. Very much so. <clears throat> what did that teach you about developing other people, taking care of other people, and leading other people? It taught me that, geez, Mark, that's that's where you, you know, that's your first duty assignment. That's where you learn your good supervisors, your bad supervisors. And the ones who took care of me and listened to me and pulled me aside and helped show me what I was doing wrong and corrected me, gave me the idea that they believe in me, so I got to believe in myself. I don't want to let my crew down because you work on a crew of five to six other airmen are on your crew and you have a master sergeant who's in charge of that dock that you're on and you don't want to disappoint any of them. So it's kind of like drawing back to when you're on a high school team of sort. Like you don't want to be the point guard that brings that ball down the court and pass it and get it intercepted and then they go back and score. So you wanted to be a valued member of that team. So you worked hard. You dug deep, you worked hard, and you hoped that you could show someone coming behind you that this is how we do it here. And that's what we did. This is how we do it here. Mm -hmm. It implies that each organization, even whether it's in a jet engine, sorry, a jet engine shop, Mm -hmm. or um, a fire department or an office space. Uh, this is the way we do it here implies that there is a culture to every small shop. Yeah, you're kidding yourself if you don't believe that there's a culture in every shop. What makes Which, a good culture? Teamwork. Okay. Everybody working toward the same common goal and everybody understanding what that goal is. Clear communication from the top down. That helps. Yeah. Understanding what the expectations are. You know, when, when we get new airmen in, in fact, yesterday I was visiting with the Additional Duty First Sergeant Symposium, and we had a conversation about expectations. Huh. That, you know, it's, it's really important to sit down and talk about expectations. Because that's what they did when you walked in the engine shop. That was part of your own processing. You sat in a room, and that dock chief said, this is my expectation of this team. This is what I want from you. Laid it out. There was no fancy words. And they weren't nice about it sometimes, but they told us what needed to happen. Yeah, and here in Minnesota, we're used to just passively coming along, and we'll get it eventually, right? Eventually, they'll figure it out. If we yeah. just keep doing it this way, they'll figure it out. Yeah. Well, sometimes we have to sit down and explain it. Yeah. And that's okay. That's totally okay. Yep. What's been the most difficult thing you've had to go through in your career? Most difficult thing in my career. 
Gosh. You know, it's kind of a a personal, personal, well, okay, so I was on deployment. And now, mind, mind you, I went on one deployment to Afghanistan in 2012. We were there for 89 glorious days, 89 glorious days. Um, and life-changing events took place for me. Um, I had my first granddaughter born, and uh, my mother was finally diagnosed, and we realized that she was not going to be with us for long. So I returned home from a deployment, super excited to see my granddaughter. And then I had to turn and look at my mother and realize I've got to walk with her and get her to her next stage of life graciously and with dignity. That was hard. Mm -hmm. That was really hard. Balancing those life, home, and career things is always hard. Yes. Especially, and then I got promoted to chief because I knew when I came home from the deployment, that that was October, late no, late October, early November, and I knew ooh, in January I might get promoted to chief. I think it might happen this time, and I did, and I got promoted to chief. And uh, my mom died twelve days later. Oh. But she was she was with me. She was with me. Of course she Still was. Still is. Yeah. Mm So that's a personal thing. But like professionally, what's the hardest thing I've been through? Nope. I asked you what's the hardest thing you've had Perfect. to go through. We're going to leave it there. Totally okay. Yeah. Because be the way we started talking about this is our building resilience, which is mm -hmm. one of your big goals. Yes. And then we'll talk about the relationship part of that. It all comes together in this total package of an, what makes a good human being out right. here. It, there's a balance between the personal and the professional. Who helped you through that? My wingmen, my village. Mm -hmm. I call them my village. Yeah. They helped me get through it. Um, you know, if you, don't have, if you don't have a wingman, if you don't have somebody there that can just look at you and know exactly what you need, you need to find that person. You know, I had my husband always, my family always. But at work, you really need to build that network of people that will be there with you through it all, through the thick and the thin. So, yeah, my village helped me through that. It's good that we work in a place where people can care for each other and love one another, which implies sometimes we fight with one another and we come out on the other side and we still care. Yeah, we don't always agree yeah. with the village and what they're telling us. But you have to hear it sometimes. So your other big goal is... <clears throat> resiliency and then the relationship piece yeah and we've talked about what builds a culture in an organization um what builds relationships in an organization that are healthy and strong trust have to have trust or you can't have any type of relationship how do you build that through time through honesty honest communication being able to look the person in the eye and tell them what they've done wrong and that they're going to be okay and that we can move forward from that one thing they did wrong. Looking at somebody and telling them that they did, they did a really good job and they should be proud of themselves, but now let's move forward and, and keep, keep doing good things. You know, honesty and trust. Trust is so important and it, it doesn't happen overnight, but trust is if you're always there for somebody and you're always telling them not necessarily what they want to hear, but what they need to hear. 
people will start to trust you. That's a skill that is built over time. Doesn't happen overnight. No, and you talked about your first first duty station there in Japan and, and even joining the military where expectations were clearly laid out, mm -hmm. not necessarily in a way that we were, we Minnesotans no. were used to, <laughs> but still they're clearly laid out. Yes. When I, my second duty assignment was at McCord Air Force Base and I was working on C-140. Yes, Washington State. Yeah. C-141s, flight line. Wow. Culture shock, but so fun. I had a master sergeant supervisor, female. Do you know what it felt like to walk through the door and see that I had a master sergeant female for my reporting uh, supervisor? That would have been an experience that would have been very different for me compared to you. Yes. So tell me about that. So you, I walked through the door and there sat this master sergeant and she was so confident, so respected. She treated everyone in our, in, you know, within our group. There was a group of, I think 10 to 12 of us about, cause it was where it was, that type of the Air Force where it was the rivet workforce, I want to call it, where you had two jet troops, two fuel troops, two hydraulic troops, two avionics. You had a couple of every trade in one group, and that was your crew, and you were assigned three C-141s. And she laid out her expectations right out the gates. She always held you to those expectations. She talked to you if you didn't meet those expectations, and she was just really, really a good leader. And then as a female, she and I one night on, cause I worked midnights with her. We had a conversation of shared experiences we had had. And it was so nice to hear someone validate some of the feelings you had. Um, as a female service member, if you are going to a doctor's appointment or something like that, you often get asked, well, what's your sponsor's social security number? Because in the military, that's what you are driven by, your sponsor's social security number. And for people listening, a sponsor basically means the person that actually works here. Right. So it's often thought that it's not you. So, And she just, she laid out quickly. She's like, I am my own sponsor. So don't be afraid to advocate for yourself. Was her words to me. And I was, you know, I was a senior airman, thought I knew everything. But man, that meant a lot. And, you know, she was she was a really good mechanic, too. So that helped them respect her a little bit. Mm -hmm. She was good at what she did. So, yeah, the guys in our in our little group even followed her quite well. As they should. Yeah, she was a heck of a supervisor. Yeah. You mentioned rank, like, twice in that. Yeah. But you also mentioned a lot of characteristics about her as a leader that crossed that gender doesn't really matter, right? Does, yeah. They're, they're just good leadership skills. And that's basically what she wanted me to, like, don't just be a good airman. Mm -hmm. All right. That's what you got to do. So what, what advice do you have for the young women joining the military today that they should follow based on what you learned from that master sergeant way back in the 1900s? Back in the 1900s. Well, simply, and it might be cliche, but follow those three core values that we have. You follow those, you'll not, you you'll not go wrong. But when you don't follow them and you've made a mistake, own it. Anyone that works has worked for me in the past, and if they're listening, they'll say, you know, that was Chief Erickson. She always said, make a mistake. I don't care. Own it, admit it, get over it, and move past it. So that would be my advice to any airman: follow those core values. And if you slip up and you make a mistake, own it, address it, and move forward. And don't be afraid to try something different.
different. Stretch yourself. You only grow when you stretch yourself in my mind. I believe that. You got to get out of your comfort zone. Absolutely. I have been speaking with the Minnesota State Command Chief, Lisa Erickson, and we are going to take a brief break, finish our cups of coffee, uh, while you get to listen to this important message and stick around. We'll be back for the second section in just a bit. Hey, this is Mary Matson, the Director of Psychological Health for the 133rd. The holidays are upon us and this time of year can be tough for a lot of people because of loneliness, financial pressures, or maybe you're dreading those tense dinner table debates with relatives. Whatever your reason, remember it's okay to establish your own boundaries, which may include changing up holiday traditions and not putting pressure on yourself to have holiday cheer if you're not feeling it. Also avoid numbing difficult feelings by using alcohol and other, other substances, which can worsen anxiety and depression. Don't forget to stop by the Airman Wellness Center in building 631 on the second floor. In our center, you can find the Airman and Family Readiness Office, personal financial counselor, psychological health, our sexual assault response coordinator, and equal opportunity, plus many more programs. We have support and free resources to help our airmen and their families. So stop by or you can contact me, Mary Matson, the Director of Psychological Health at 612-713-2099. Again, that is 612-713-2099. I've been sharing a cup of coffee and having a conversation with the Minnesota State Command Chief, Lisa Erickson. Thanks for sticking around for the second section here uh, we refreshed our coffee a little bit and chit-chatted like we do during the break um, and talked about being genuine and talk, yes. talked a little bit about, uh, it's a podcast so we can say it, the skill of bullshitting and being able to bullshit with just about anybody. Yes. Did you learn that in ESCO? Well, yeah. My dad was probably the biggest, anyone who knows me and is listening to this podcast and knows my dad, they know I got that skill from my dad. He was Sam Mackey, the friendly oil man. He was just the guy that everybody loved, and he could make a conversation with anybody. Oil man being, he delivered, he delivered oil? oil. Heating oil, right? Heating oil, yeah. Oh, back in the good old glorious Sam, days. Sam, of... the friendly oil man. Okay. That's what we called him, yes. He was a, he, the guy always had a smile on his face. Happiest guy. Yeah. But I will tell you, the one job where using my skill to BS was being a recruiter. When I was the recruiting office supervisor, we would have to take the recruits in the van, like four or five of them, sometimes one, maybe four, maybe anywhere to that number. The recruiter would drive them down here to the military entrance processing station, MEPS, mm -hmm. drop them off for their processing. Yeah. And I can tell you there's some awkward silence there, but I can make conversation with anybody. And that's one of my skills that I, you know, I can talk to anybody. So when we're driving down I-35 and we're looking at the windshield and that kid wants nothing to say, I'll get him to talk. And by the time we get home, the conversation, the radio's off and the conversation's just flowing through the van. That's just that's just what you got to do. Because at that point, you've been in the military for over 10 years. Over 20. Probably at that point. No, Ten. not over 20. Under 20. Mm -hmm. Over 10. You've been in for how long now? 32. Oofta. Oofta, Mackie. It's, it's not... It's not too far off. Not as long me. as Mark Rukavina. No. He was in for... 40. Over 40. Plus. 
Yes. So you you talked a little bit about being in the, in the recruiting, yes, and BSing is a good part of that. And mm -hmm. recruiting is its own challenge, yes. right? What makes a good recruiter? What makes a good recruiter? Yeah, hard work. That's yeah, tough. You got to stick to it. You got to have stick to itness to you as well. Like you, they're gonna not want to come in the guard. You have to sell the guard. You have to sell the guard to their parents. Some of these young kids, you really got to sell it to their parents. You're looking them in the eye. They're sitting across the desk from you, and you've got this mother staring you down like you're taking the most prized possession of mine, and you're going to put them in boots, and you're going to what with them? And you have to build that rapport. So it's, you know, I, I talk about this delicate dance. There you go, back to that dance again. You got to be careful and know who your audience is and be able to be honest and build trust mm -hmm. with that with that person across the desk from you. And it's not always the member that's enlisting. It's often the family that you have to build that trust with first. Oftentimes I've, I've been, had the privilege to go to a lot of enlistment ceremonies where these young men and women that want to join, want to serve, come in and they're able to bring their folks, bring their, their family mm -hmm. and raise their right hand for the first time and take the oath of enlistment. And usually I'll take the opportunity to chat with the family a little BS. Yeah. Uh, with the family a little bit. And at some point, I, I have always liked to say thank you for trusting us with your your best. Yeah. I try to look them in the eye and say, we'll do our best to take care of them. Yeah. We will do our best. Yeah. I think it's important. I think my parents would have felt a little more confident sending little Lisa out the door. Had somebody looked at him and said, she'll be okay. We didn't know. Right. But now in the guard, we can we have the ability to do that. That's the beauty of the guard, is we can get to know your family so well. Yep. And the good, bad, and the ugly of you, true. you get to know all of it. Yep. And eventually, the the family will just follow and join right, right on up. But you you get to know the airmen, and you get to meet them where they're at, and learn. They're when you know someone for that long and how they've been raised, you can. I always say, oh, they come by it honestly. You know, uh -huh. you just got to give them grace because they come by it honestly. Grace is easier to give when you have that relationship built. Yep. Isn't it? Yes. And and you can trust them mm -hmm. even if they make a mistake. And we're going to. We yeah. It's humans. We will all make mistakes. Yeah. Inevitably taking good care of, of folks and bringing them along and, and allowing the family to be a part of the yeah. first part of that enlistment. It makes, it makes an attachment mm -hmm. that's that's so unique to what we do and where we serve. Yeah. Sets the tone. It does. And yet, inevitably, at the end of four or six years, they all have a choice to make. Yes. Whether to stick around or not. And we're in the middle of this great, uh, what are they calling it? Everybody's leaving their jobs and looking for the next greener pasture in their, in their public jobs. What's the biggest retention issue that we're facing right now? How do we, how do we not just take care of, but keep the talent that we have? Well, you know, as command chiefs, I, at the 148th as the command chief, I was the last stop on everyone's out processing checklist. So I would talk, I'd get a chance to talk with them and find out why are you leaving? And I would say probably the biggest cause is work-life balance. Just they're at that, you know, that eight to 10 year mark. They've finished college or they've finished their technical, you know, their tech school or whatever 
whatever their civilian life is looking like, they're ready to step out and really make their big first career job. And they're afraid that the guard is going to cause an issue with that. Or they're starting a family and it's just getting too much. And, you know, they can't be gone four weekends out of the month and guard drill is going to be one of those and they work the two other weekends. So something has to give. So they're, they're giving up the guard because it's the easiest thing on the plate. Now, so the conversation at that point, you know, they've already made their decision. Now the retention piece of that is making them feel they can come back and keeping that relationship. I always try and ask them, please take my email, email me in 90 days, tell me how you feel about your decision. Are you still happy you've made that decision? Uh, just to keep that relationship there. Because mm -hmm. I think we can bring them back if we let them go with grace and dignity and with respect, they'll remember that and come back when life settles, when life settles. We recently at the 148th, we, I have to say that at the 148th, we got to stop the we, at the 148th, they had three people come back after taking a huge break in service. Two were parents. They had enlisted their kids into the guard and looked and went, man, I should just come back. So two parents did. One of them, she's now deployed for six months. She's doing great things. Um, and then another, he had been out probably 15, 16 years and just always knew he needed to get back in. And I knew him through this uh, civilian life. So there was a Colonel Vavra also knew him. So there's a few of us that worked and talked him into coming back into the guard. And I always say to these people that are walking out the door mid-career, 10, 11 years, please go see one of these three people and ask how they feel about their break in service. And then look at them and realize you can take a break. You can take a knee and you can come back. That is such an important message because some now people leave a job. This is more than a job. It's 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 a calling. Mm -hmm. um, people leave a job and they know they're not going to come back and they burn the bridge right on their way out the door. Yeah, we and try to not do that, don't we? We do. I, I think that starts with day number one where we we start that relationship building and we mm -hmm. we build a person's you know resilient core of wingmen. Right. support people and that that family and try and make them feel like they this is a place where you belong even when life is pulling you elsewhere yes. you can come back yes that we're, we're going to a meeting lisa and i are here in just a little bit where we're going to talk to the state demographer yeah she's going to tell us what it looks like what it looks like and we as as enlisted member we we get to own what it feels like out here mm -hmm. and that is that is so much fun, mm -hmm. but balancing those two things yeah. um, and retaining our talent, but bringing our talent back. Um, yes. I'd love to see that become an easier thing. Oh, wouldn't it be nice? Mm -hmm. Also, wouldn't it be nice if we could go from one, uh, one component to another, like come from the active duty component, component into the guard and then from the guard into the active duty, you know, making that a, a lot easier. Hmm, I wonder if the Enlisted Field Advisory Council could help with that. At I all. wonder. I know you're you're very big and active in that organization of. You know, I had to get my plug in for my EFAC. Why wouldn't you? It, and that's the other great thing about doing what we do and working where we are is, not only is there a voice for everybody. We have junior enlisted councils. We have we have people in their first two years of service able to tell the 
highest ranking person in our organization face to face what they think. Yes. There's a mechanism for that. And it, it's so good. We're not always good listeners, mm. but there is always opportunity to listen. Yes. Uh, next time you talk to my Lisa, you can, uh, you can mention that I just said that. Okay. <laughs> One of the things that I need to work at is uh, those skills of listening, but there is always that opportunity to listen, especially in our organization, which is great. Hey, so you're state command chief, you've been wing command chief, you worked admin jobs, you've been a jet engine mechanic, you've been a recruiter, you've worked in the medical career field. What's the funnest? I was thinking, I was hoping you'd ask me that. Civil engineering, prime beef training manager. Oh, my stars. Thank Had to you. get that in. That was, I worked with the coffee shop crowd, you know, your carpenters, your plumbers, your electricians, they mm -hmm. were the best group of, well, there, a lot of them were men, but there was a couple, couple gals in there, but they were just the best group. They were so fun, so authentic, salt of the earth people that just really wanted to do a good job. So good that when I enlisted my son, I put him in civil engineering. A great place to be. It is. He's a dirt boy. Yeah. Heavy equipment operator, Master Sergeant Jason Erickson. Well, mm -hmm. congratulations. Yes. Proud yes. mom. Little bit. He's getting ready to go on his fourth deployment, though. So, you know, when I enlisted him, I told him, oh, you probably won't deploy. Whoops. Much. Uh, That's okay, though. He's got a good support network. His wife is really phenomenal, and it'll be good. That's good. Yeah. And I'm sure. Not that they'll listen to this podcast, but. Well, maybe, maybe they will. Maybe. Just to hear me. Hear Mark Legvold. I'm sure. But is this fun now? Well, yeah. Of oh. course, being the command chief is fun. Yeah. Because, you know, like drill weekends where you get to walk around and just talk to people? Mm, best job the, ever. The last 18 months has been really hard it's to do It's been that. hard. Right. That's what Colonel Blomquist and I struggled because we were doing so good getting out and talking to people. And uh, it's not always his comfort zone. Uh -huh. And he was really starting to get comfortable with that. And then COVID hit. So now uh, Chief Joe Mickiton, that's his job at the 148th. He's yeah. got to make sure that the wing commander gets out and talks to people because that's what matters. How does that feel, passing your old job on to somebody and staying in a part of the organization? Ooh, she's tough. It's tough, but I've only been at it three weeks. Uh, but I'm handing, I'm handing the airman, the care of the airman, off to someone who will do a phenomenal job. He's not me. He doesn't have to be me. But he's going to do great things. I see the three of us, you, he, and I, working very closely together and getting some really good development for our airmen. So I hope they're excited because you two are phenomenal development builders. You build great programs. Um, I'm just looking forward to see where you guys take this. I think we're, we're going to have a lot of fun together. I am yeah. hoping that we can get in and amongst people a whole lot more than we have in the exactly. last 18 months. Yeah. 19... Which, by the way, I've been in the job for 19 months, so doing our best. <laughs> what a good time to start a new job. COVID. Uh, okay. So I asked, is, is this fun? What? Yes, it's fun. You, have, uh, you and I have spoken about the podcast, and we're going to play quick questions. Um, so just to remind you of the rules, I ask a question, and you have to say what comes into your mind first. And... We move on to the next question really quick. All right. So the ladies in my book club read between the wines. They're waiting to hear this. Read between the wines. Yes. Okay. 
Favorite country song from the 90s? Favorite country song? Well, it's got to be an Earl Thomas Conley one, ETC, right? Mm. Gosh. Okay. Something from ETC. Was the name of the song Gosh Okay or? Can't think of it. I can't think of just one song. But Earl Thomas Conley is right. probably one of my favorite 90s. I'll let that one go. Best thing about living in Minnesota? The weather. <laughs> Four seasons. Favorite Thanksgiving food? Turkey? You hit the cliche. Okay. Song you sing when you're alone? Song I sing when I'm alone? I've got an old church choir singing in my soul. That's what I sing. Nice. Best TV show from the 80s? Best TV show. Love Boat. Instrument you wish you could play? Piano. If you could only eat one food, what would it be? One food? Mm-hmm. <sighs> Cheetos. What the heck is a hogshead? Hogshead? Yep. Hoghead. Sorry, I even mispronounced it. Hoghead? It's a festival in Proctor. Correction, I live in the Pike Lake area, which is part of the Proctor School District. Okay, so explain explain to me what a hoghead is. I Honestly, I, I can't do it justice because I think it has something to do with the rail system in Proctor. Mm. Proctor Rails. So they, there are many people right now going, oh, my stars. I know. She doesn't know what a hoghead is. Somebody I know it's a festival doesn't know what a in August is. that they always have. And, you know, since I've lived in the Proctor School District, I think I've been to hoghead once. But as a young kid, man, we never missed hoghead. My friends, Joe Davidson, Dan Hakenin, that crew, we went to hoghead. That was fun. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Minnesota, Street dance. Minnesota has town festivals, mm-hmm. and everybody's got to have one. That's theirs. Big old street dance. Good time. Mm-hmm. Hoghead, by the way, is a term used for the engineer on a train. Thank you. I knew it had something to do with the rail. Yeah. I, I learned this from another well-experienced podcaster and listening to him saying, never ask a question you don't know the answer to, even though I didn't know the answer to your favorite country song from the 90s. Yeah, I know. I'm gonna and Josh Colkine's gonna get mad that I didn't say a song. So, is Proctor a better place to live than Esco? Both quality cities. Oh, playing the politics right there. Mm-hmm. Esco's Finlanders, though traditionally, and that's mm-hmm. where I'm. I'm a Finnish girl. Oh, all right. Esco has a notorious past. Was Moses Garage still around? Oh my stars! Do you know that my that's where my dad grew, worked? Okay. Was for the Luapaka family or Leapaka family, right. as you call it. Yeah, Moses Leapaka. So the the claim to fame for that gas station. My oh. grandmother lived upstairs of Moses Chev back right. in the day. Yeah. So Moses Chevrolet was an Esco, and then it moved to Scanlon, and then Kohler bought Moses out. Okay. Moses Chevrolet because the Luapaka boys were done with it. Your grandma, your grandma lived upstairs. My grandma lived upstairs of the original Moses Chevrolet showroom, fancy building, still there in Esco. Wow. Grandma Mackie, she lived upstairs there. So here's the famous thing about Esco and that gas station. John Dillinger stopped by there once. At Moses Chev. Yeah, and they fixed his generator when he was on the run. Do you know that my dad owned the gas station in town for a little bit? No kidding. Yeah, he was a little bit of an entre- entrepreneur in his day. Well, mm-hmm. delivered oil and owned a gas station. Well, he did. Yeah, he had a gas station for a short bit. Well. The only business we need is your business was his, slow- was his logo. 
or slogan. That could work for the Air National Guard. The only business the only we, need we need is, is your yours. Recruit. Sam Mackey, brilliant. <laughs> believe it. <laughs> I believe it. Um, okay, so drinking question. Here we go. Okay. Netflix. Netflix? Netflix. Yes. Had a really popular series about an advertising firm. This goes back to your like recruiting days. Yep. Um, called Mad Men. You ever watch it? No. It was a great show. Terrible, terrible characters in that it kind of brought out that ugly side of the 1950s. Okay. Um, Didn't watch it. The, the smoking, the drinking, the womanizing men. Sitting that, at their desk smoking, I bet. Oh, yeah. Well, they did that back in the guard. Well, unless Everybody they to, did. Unless they had to put their cigarette in their mouth and walk over to <laughs> their bar in their office and pour themselves a Manhattan. I'm Which, sorry, an old-fashioned. Old-fashioned. Um, so one of the companies that they produced uh, an ad for was Aquanet. Hairspray. Yeah. Well, you know me in hairspray. How much Aquanet do you go through in well, a month? Well, it's not Aquanet. I go through Kenra or I use Aveda Control. All right. Yeah. I go through a lot of it. Everybody will tell you, oh, gal, she uses some hairspray. That's what I have heard about yep. you. Yep. But this doesn't happen overnight. I'm touching my hair. If everybody can see me, they know what I do. This doesn't happen overnight either. Nope. I'm touching my scalp for those of you watching the <laughs> podcast at home. So Peggy Olson was a character on it. She was played by Elizabeth Moss. Moss who is now in a new Netflix series, which is escaping me terrible. Anyway, she was a groundbreaking character who faced the sexism and the well-established glass ceiling in a company back mm -hmm. in the 1950s. Kind of like joining a like, male-dominated career field yeah. in maintenance. Right. So here's my vision that I have, thinking of Lisa Erickson, the state command chief, who's been around for 30-some-odd years in the military, and breaking barriers of her own. You and Peggy in the 50s are sitting around chatting over some nice old fashions. Me and Peg. You and Peg. And you say, Peg, I wanna I wanna give you some advice about how to get ahead. And it's the 1950s. What advice would you give women in the 50s to make it easier for women in the 2020s? Be true to yourself, hang in there, and change is coming but only you can make that change possible. You really have to be part of that change. Be true to yourself, Peg. Don't sell yourself short. It was a good character. She struggled through a lot of stuff. The character did. And I think it just kind of painted this picture of what it was like for women trying to be true to themselves in the 1950s and how Not difficult easy. it was. And never apologize for being yourself. So are we getting it right? We're starting. Oh, yeah. Yes, I think so. I hope so. Jeez. You know, we're old now. We're the old people on the team. Aren't we, though? I guess to honestly answer that question, Mark, you and I would have to go ask our young airmen that question. Yeah. Are we getting it right? I try to ask that when I have the opportunity yeah. here. And most of the time, people answer, we're getting there or we're trying. Yeah, we're close. And we're so working. We're working. That's what. That's all we can do. Um. So what gives you the most hope for the future in the Air National Guard? Airmen, the young airmen. Yeah. Man, looking at them, they're so excited. Student flight. You walk into student flight, talk with them, and they're excited. They want to get to basic training. You watch the graduation ceremonies. You see people post the pictures on the Book of Faces and the Instagram and all of that. That's out and there on the like, World Wide Web, huh? On that World Wide Web that I like to go to. Um, yeah, that's what makes me excited is uh, who's coming up our ranks. 
they're so much smarter than we were. Yes. And yeah. And they, they kind of know what they want a little bit more. Yeah. Than what I, I had no idea. Yeah. Lisa Erickson, state command chief for the state of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Team 14. Team 14. Thanks for joining me today on Beneath the Wing. Next episode, I'm going to be joined by one of our maintainers who crossed into the blue from a different branch of service and into the Air National Guard. Um, I haven't for a while, and I just need to take a quick opportunity to thank Amy Lovegren in the 133rd Public Affairs section for the production expertise that she pours into this every time I give her the recordings. And if you really like podcasts and you like the opportunity to learn about what it is like to lead, I want to encourage you this next year, January 13th, Team 13, the National uh, Command Chief for the Air National Guard, Mo Williams, is releasing 13 Ways to Lead. And episode one releases on January 13th. I'll try and remind you then. But in the meantime, thanks, Lisa, for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely a pleasure. We'll see you all next time. <laughs>